Science matters. Facts still count. Data can help us solve problems. Using science, smart people around the world are figuring out how to address some of the most complex issues of our time. But we don't hear their voices. And sadly, our leaders don't often take their advice. We need to listen to these people, people who have no financial stake in the outcome. We need to support and encourage independent science. This is how we will find the solutions we need to make a better world. And this is Green Street. Climate change is here in a big way. While the skeptics continue to ignore reality, we're watching the West Coast burn, the South be ravaged by relentless hurricanes, the Midwest hit with floods and tornadoes, and although we on the East Coast have largely been spared over the past year from the immense power of Mother Nature's wrath, we know that natural disasters will find their way here again before too long. And what are our leaders doing? As incredible as it seems, some so-called conservatives are demanding more oil drilling, more natural gas expansion, more coal burning, all in the name of jobs and the economy. It's a Faustian bargain. We will give you jobs and money if you let us plunder the earth and commit future generations to a world of rising sea levels, record droughts, devastating storms, and steadily rising temperatures. Who would make that deal with the devil? Who are these people? Fortunately, there are still voices of reason out there, smart people who are looking at facts, working the problem, and finding solutions. And one of those people is Mark Jacobson. Mark is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University and director of its Atmosphere Energy Program. He has developed the world's most intricate and accurate computer models to study the effects of fossil fuel burning on air pollution, weather, and climate. And Mark and his team have developed achievable and economically feasible plans to transition our energy production to 100% wind, water, and solar by 2030, which used to sound like a long way off, but is now just nine years away. Anyway, Patty and I caught up with Mark last week. My first question for Mark was how he got involved in this whole issue in the first place. Here's our Green Street interview with scientist, researcher, and energy visionary, Mark Jacobson. Well, first, when I was a teenager, I was about 13 years old, uh, I would travel down to San Diego and Los Angeles to play tennis, and I just noticed the air was so polluted there. Back This was back in the 1970s, mm-hmm. and the, I mean, the pollution was worse even in the 50s and 60s, and, and actually and really bad in the 70s, and it was so visible, and I just thought, why should people live like this? And I thought, this is a problem that really needs to be solved, and so I thought about that as I grew up, and when I went to um, college uh, at Stanford University, I thought, well, this is a problem I want to focus on. So I, uh, we actually, there was no major there for air pollution, really anything close. There were some environmental studies classes, um, but I tried to yeah, take science and engineering classes related, as closely related to air pollution as I could. I took economics as well to try to understand uh, the uh, economics related to you know, trying to solve the problem. Um, but then for a PhD, I went on to go to UCLA, which is a living laboratory of air pollution, <laughs> in, mm. in the living laboratory of air yeah, pollution. To, right in the middle to actually, of it. <laughs> yeah, study atmospheric science and build a, a uh, air pollution computer model to study Los Angeles pollution. And that actually, then I became interested in, well, expanding that to study climate. And so I built a global climate model uh, 
that also had all the chemistry and aerosol processes that uh, I was using to solve air pollution in Los Angeles. And so I ended up yeah, studying a lot of climate, the impacts of different gases and particles on climate, in particular the effects of uh, black carbon and brown carbon on global warming, and found, for example, that black and brown carbon were the second leading cause of global warming after carbon dioxide. So you had all of this education, you just kept building on what you had what you had learned and just moving it into another another problem or another issue. And I was reading a little bit about this this discovery that black carbon, you know, the main component of soot air pollution particles, was the second leading cause of global warming. You know, we've been looking at global warming for a long time. We've never read about black carbon before. So how did you discover this? Were you the one who discovered this? Uh, yes, yes, I was the one who discovered that. And it's interesting now, the reason you haven't heard of it, even though it is in, there are now laws uh, nationally and internationally related to black carbon and controlling it for climate purposes, it's it's mostly because black carbon is a short-lived pollutant, and it not only um, affects climate, but it also is one of the significant components of air pollution health problems. Early on in the early days of uh, global warming issues, there were, you know, a lot of climate skeptics were criticizing CO2. They were just saying, well, the climate models don't work. And then when I found the black carbon, actually, Jim Hansen then supported this work, too. Jim Hansen and I were the, um, around the year 2000 and 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he strongly supported the, the work as well and came up with his own uh, results showing that black carbon was uh, the second leading cause as well. Mm. So this finding was corroborated and has been in uh, the IPCC documents, although in IPCC, they don't they don't separate out the particle components for the most part. Uh, when they when they have um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their main overall summaries, they just show the total effects of particles. Right. And mm-hmm. they don't they don't separate them out. They don't separate out the components. So right. it turns out that there are other components of particles that cause cooling. In fact, there are more cooling components of particles than warming components. Black and brown carbon are the primary warming components, but pretty much everything else causes cooling. So the the cooling overwhelms, and so when you throw them all together and you don't separate them out, mm-hmm. you get a net cooling, and so nobody's talking about the global warming of black carbon. Isn't that <laughs> fascinating? It masks the effect. Okay. It masks the effect. And, cool. all, and in fact, particles do mask, overall, do mask the effect, but there, you can control black carbon from diesel sources and jet fuel and, and kerosene burning because they are individual sources that can be controlled that pr- emit primarily black carbon. So it is something that is controllable. Now, this may be too technical, Mark, but how did you separate out the black carbon to determine its effect on, on climate change? Well, yeah, that's, so that's, this, that's the same reason I needed a model to do this. So I have mm-hmm. this really intricate air pollution model. The thing is, you can, when you're studying air pollution, you can do things in really high detail because the simulations are relatively short. They're a few days. And so the computer time is not so long as when you're doing global climate studies, you know, you can run those models for years mm. and so so pretty much every climate model is very simple, and so that's why none of these climate models had this detailed treatment that could allow you to study the effects of black carbon uh, properly. Now, my computer simulations took a lot longer than most people's computer simulations. I would spend one to two years just running mm. these. I mean, literally one simulation could take between one and two years of real time. So I would mm-hmm. start it running, and two years later, I'd, you know, one and a half to two years later, usually I'd just come back and <laughs> finally have results. <laughs> that's a long cup of coffee. Okay, yeah. That's interesting. But it was only because I built this complex computer model that was able to discern this effect of black carbon. So this is primarily a a byproduct of of diesel exhaust, or what is the primary source of of black carbon? 
well, burning all burning will emit some black carbon and brown carbon. And if it's a higher temperature burn, like in a in a high temperature flame, you'll see black smoke. Mm-hmm. That means it has black f- carbon. So even biomass burning, if it's a really high temperature flame, you'll see you'll see I black see. smoke. That I means see. there's black carbon in it. Mm-hmm. If okay. it's a low temperature burn, then it'll be more o- orange or red or or yellow, and that's more organic carbon. And so anyway, biomass burning emits it. Diesel exhaust, jet fuel, kerosene burning. There's yeah, pretty much any type of combustion that's high temperature. Wow. So so now you built a model that's, that that teased out the the black carbon. Then what? Yeah, so then I, well, I, I was always interested in first understanding the problem. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I had a, a plan laid out. My overall goal was to solve these problems of pollution and global warming. And in order to do that, I had to first understand the problem. And that's where I built these models to do that. And there was, and I became really addicted to it because it was really fun. And because I was always doing new things with these computer models. But my ultimate goal was to try to solve the problem. So to do that, I, well, I started looking at the solutions and where I had uh, I'd taken a course back in 1984 from a professor at Stanford named Gil Masters, who was a really excellent teaching professor. And he'd come up with this nifty equation for looking at the efficiency of any wind turbine that pretty much worked for any wind turbine in the world based on just its rated power, its diameter of the blade, and the mean wind speed that it was exposed to. That this equation was very accurate, so I used this equation. It wasn't published anywhere except it was in his class notes from 1984. And uh, so I used this equation to calculate like how much from it. And I looked at and found these new modern wind turbines at the time. And I used one particular one to say, okay, if you use this wind turbine, how much coal could you displace in the United States? And I found that you can satisfy the Kyoto Protocol, which was a climate treaty that had been agreed to by the international community, but not ratified yet by the United States turned out to not be ratified by the U.S., mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you could satisfy it by replacing 60% of coal with wind, and I wrote a paper on this, very short paper, it's actually the shortest paper I've ever written, like three quarters of one page, <laughs> mm. and uh, we got it published in Science Magazine, and then, but it got so much feedback, mostly from uh, coal people and... Sure, the naysayers. Mm-hmm. Naysayers who did not uh, like the conclusion... And, but it really spurred on, it spurred me on. I said, okay, well, if this little paper generated all sorts of feedback, well, maybe we should just work on this more, find it, uh, do more detailed studies, because it's really opened up the door for all sorts of other issues to be looked at. And, right. and one particular right. was because it made assumptions about, well, if your mean wind speed is like seven meters per second or faster, then this works. So <laughs> the next question is, well, what percent of the U.S. wind is seven meters per second or faster? I got a, a PhD student, and she was an amazing student who then did a world wind map and a U.S. wind map based on data alone. In fact, they are the only wind maps ever created that are based on data alone for the entire world and for the entire United States. Without being stupid, what else would you base a map on besides Uh data? Oh, um, computer model simulations. Oh, I see. Okay, so these, this was actual. This is actual recorded data that was used. Hmm. Yeah, there's all from all the soundings and surface stations in oh, the I world. See. Yeah. And okay. We're trying to get data. We're trying to get the wind speeds at 80 meters above the ground. We have actually here in New York State approved uh, building two wind farms off. Um, one off Long Island, uh, both off Long Island, actually, one which will power um, New York City to some extent, and then the other one, Long Island. And they're set to begin construction in 2022 and 2023. And 
Can you just talk a little bit about offshore wind? And yeah. do you know anything about these two projects? Yeah, first, first of all, like offshore wind, we definitely need to put that up as fast as possible on the East Coast and the West Coast of the U.S. and throughout the world. It is the, first of all, the greatest untapped resource of energy, renewable energy, that is, in the world. And it's an amazing resource. You can pretty much power the whole U.S. with offshore wind. But more relevant even to California, especially this week, you get more offshore wind off northern California coasts in summer than any other season. And so in California, we have these um, blackouts that have been occurring the last week um, because of these extremely high temperatures. Now, actually, today, in the last two days, in fact, it's been actually cool because the sky in California is just covered with smoke from mm. fires from Oregon, and so it's blocking the sun. And so now they, we don't have a, a heat wave going on anymore. <laughs> we now have an ex- basically... Because uh, you're blocking, I, the, blocking the sun with, these, with the smoke. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm the dinosaurs from uh, yeah. when they were be- just before they became extinct. Stink. Because they yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> man, oh, man. I know we've been, we've, been, we've been watching news, you know, news stories about what's going on there. It's, like, um, amazing what's right. going yeah. on. So let me just say, so, so you say that there's, there's a lot of wind off the coast, off, you know, off the west coast there, especially in northern California, and in the summer. The other thing is that it's peak coincidence. So, like, the, when we were having the heat wave last week, you know, the peak time that people turn on the air conditioning, the hottest time of the day is usually around 5, 6 p.m., and that's when people have their uh, air conditioning blasting the most. And that's when, in the sun, and we have a lot of solar radi- solar in California, mm-hmm. solar installed, solar photovoltaics, but the solar peaks at noon, and then it kind of tails off as you go towards, you know, 6, 7, 8 p.m. Right. And that's when the peak um, electricity demand is at 6, 7, 8 p.m. But it turns out that offshore wind in California peaks around 6, 7, 8 p.m. <laughs> in the really? summer where it's highest. So... The only reason we don't have, we have these blackouts is because we don't have offshore wind installed in California. So now you're talking about political will and, and, you know, corporate, you know, pressure and all that other stuff. So totally. No, it's not only that. It's just people didn't know. I mean, the the reason I know this is because we published a study on this. Mike Dvorak is another PhD student uh, who did an excellent study, not only in the West Coast, but East Coast. He He mapped the East Coast and West Coast offshore wind resources. Mm-hmm. And and also their peak coincidence, how they actually meet peak mm-hmm. energy mm-hmm. demand. Mm-hmm. You know, and so these papers have been published, but most people are not aware of them. So it's really the question of if people were more aware of what's available, then they would not be so resistant to it. But the same thing in the East Coast. I mean, the offshore wind, it is peak coincidence. So when you have the highest electricity peak in New York, uh, that's when offshore wind is actually peaking, and that's why we need offshore wind in New York, is to meet that those peak, uh, peaks in demand. So yeah. I, I, as far as I know, these will be the first wind farms on the East Coast, is that correct? Um, there is, now there are four wind turbines, I mean, if you want to call it a farm. Mm. Um, okay, it's a small four farm. turbines. Off yeah. Road Island. Yes, I do know about yeah. them, yeah. Right. yeah. But yeah, for in terms of large wind farms, yes. So what do those four turbines off Rhode Island do? How much power are they? Well, and I think also off Virginia. There's two, I think, two off Rhode Island and maybe two off Virginia. Mm-hmm. But um, I forget their size. I think each one might be around uh, five megawatts on the order. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not a lot. So it's total, let's say, it's four of those, that'll be 20 megawatts total. 
I'm sorry. I ask another stupid question. Is there a, is there a synergistic effect and effect in having wind turbines in a a farm in a row or in some sort of you know convex shape that's going to trap the wind? Well, the thing about wind is that you know if you have one turbine, it extracts energy from the wind, so it slows the wind behind the turbine. Mm-hmm. So you don't want the turbines to be too close together because they'll compete with each other for the same energy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand. You do want them close together because then you have less transmission between the turbines and mm-hmm. are, well be, between the turbines and the shore as well. Right. Although mm-hmm. in the case of offshore, there's more space than let's say onshore in most places. Um, so you don't. There's a kind of ideal distance between turbines to prevent interference, but also minimize transmission. Yeah, but you you do want them in arrays. I mean, as opposed to just you know one here, Single. one mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. miles away. Yeah. So what's what's the big drawback? What do you get for pushback on wind? Well, wind and solar are the cheapest forms of new electric power right now. But right now, onshore wind is cheaper than offshore. Although okay. the, the price of offshore wind has dropped, or the cost, I should say, has dropped significantly. So it's actually getting competitive with onshore wind in, in many places. But the advantage of offshore wind is that it's close to population centers, because most people live along the coast. Mm-hmm. And so your transmission distances are not very long. And you don't you can pretty much hide the transmission lines underwater, so you don't need to have overhead lines. And offshore wind is it's clean. There's no emissions from it. And eventually, when we get a 100% renewable world, even the manufacture of the turbines will be from renewable energy. Mm-hmm. And one concern that people have is well, birds, and you know, usually that's like a miss, uh, like a red herring because. I, wind turbines do kill birds, but coal plants kill 10 times more birds per unit energy than winds. It's just you don't see the deaths from the coal plants. It's mm-hmm. from air pollution, from the mining and the devastation of the landscape, and from the buildings of the coal plant. Mm-hmm. But um, there is actually a way that was actually recently found that to avoid about 70% of bird deaths, and that's just by painting one blade of a turbine black. It turns out there's a study that was done that that actually reduces 70% of wind bird, Isn't bird kills, that interesting. In, including 100% of the raptor kills. Hmm. But again, though, you know, in the United States, the American Bird Conservancy estimates about six or 700,000 birds die per year from wind turbines, but they also estimate that one billion birds die from buildings and three yeah. billion from cats. So, <laughs> okay. so what was your so it was it was seventy percent reduced by seventy percent bird kills and a hundred percent of raptors. It's amazing. Yeah, raptor kills by just painting one of the three yes. blades black. Yeah, that's so interesting. So we stopped you. Uh, we stopped you kind of on your journey. Uh, you know, yeah. we kind of stopped at wind power. I want to get through all the way to where we are now. Yeah. So well, we we were working on wind primarily as a, as a first solution, and from around two thousand to two thousand or so. And then at that time, then I decided I wanted to, because I'd done a lot of studies looking at the impacts of different pollution sources on air pollution and climate. And I'd also looked at the effects of different energy sources on air pollution and climate, mostly fossil energy sources, but also even hydrogen fuel cells and stuff like that. And I decided to do a review paper where I would review different proposed solutions to global warming and air pollution and energy security. Because at the time, a lot of people were proposing to use nuclear power, to use coal with carbon capture, mm-hmm. to use biofuels. And I looked at biofuels in particular, I'd, and I looked at um, yes, diesel and other types of energy sources. So I decided to look at, well, 
look at all these different energy sources, not only those, but also wind and solar, geothermal, hydroelectric, tidal power, wave power, and compare them, just looking at the environmental impacts, like on climate, on air pollution, health, uh, looking at um, catastrophic risk, looking at effects on wildlife, and looking at reliability and land use. And so a bunch of different criteria evaluating to evaluate all these different energy technologies. And I came up with a ranking of which technologies, without considering the cost at the time, but just looking at the impact of which technologies would be best, which would be medium, and which would be the worst. And the conclusion was, well, you didn't need to write a paper to actually guess this, but you do need to write a paper to actually quantify it, mm-hmm. um, was that wind, solar, geothermal, tidal wave were the best options. You know, hydro is kind of Next in the next tier, nuclear is in the tier after that. With carbon capture was even after that, and biofuels is last. Hmm. And so I said, okay, well, if we're going to try to solve these problems, we should use the best technologies, and those have to all be wind, water, and solar technologies, like onshore and offshore wind. Because of the reliability of hydro, we included that, and it's it's low direct emissions. I know some people don't like hydro, but we included hydro, <coughs> existing hydro. And also tidal wave we call water, geothermal we call water as well, because geothermal electricity, you push water down a, t- down yep. a um, borehole and it comes back up the other yeah. hot. Mm-hmm. And, and then the solar, which was solar photovoltaics and also concentrated solar and solar thermal as well. So that was we called wind, water, solar, or WWS. And so I said, well, if we really want to focus on this problem and we have to change the entire energy infrastructure of the world, let's just focus on the best technologies. Forget all these other technologies that aren't so good, like nuclear, coal with carbon capture, biofuels, biomass. And, of course, all of a sudden they got attacked mm. by all, all those technology people who didn't like that they weren't included in the wind, water, solar. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, uh, the next step was, okay, so now these are the technologies. The next step was, can we power the entire world with just wind, water, solar? So that's when I engaged uh, Mark DeLuke, who was at UC Davis at the time. And we did a study in 2009 in Scientific American. The study asked the question, is it possible to power the entire world with just wind, water, solar? And can we do it by 2030? And the answer was, yes, technically and economically, we can do it. Uh, for social and political reasons, it probably won't get completely done by then, but we should try our hardest. And this, in retrospect, this turned out, this paper that was published in 2009 uh, turned out to be the scientific basis for the Green New Deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, was a yeah. Big, read about that. it was a big, big, big article when it came out. It, it was, was a big deal. You know, it, it changed <laughs> the whole conversation, to be honest. It did, but although the time, you know, the most of the comments were, this is pie in the sky, mm-hmm. this will never happen. Mm-hmm. Sure, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, mm-hmm. we don't even have 10% of the grid <laughs> renewable or anything. And so, but the interesting thing is, if I jump forward, yeah, at that time, people were just skeptical yeah, of the whole thing and, and not even believing that we can get 10% renewables. And today, the argument is now shifted so much mm-hmm. that everybody believes we can get at least 80%. And the argument is whether we can get 100% versus 80% renewables. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, a completely different argument. Yeah, really, yeah. It's, it's remarkable how that, how that changed over. Yeah, there's really, well, I'm pleased to see that there is, it has shifted because now there's, you know, renewables are going in like gangbusters. As a result, the cost of renewables has dropped due to the economies of scale. Just when you start installing so much more of something that 
costs will drop due to just kind of supply and demand of an economy of scale. And so this is was really it's really good to see that there's a big transition going on in a lot of places. That doesn't mean we're close to solving a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm very pleased that there are many laws that have gone up now. And because, well, let me just finish the progression. So after that 2009 paper, then in 2011, I met with um, Mark Ruffalo, Josh Fox, and Marco Kraples, and who were all well, Mark Ruffalo and Josh Fox were working in New York mm-hmm. on fracking, mm-hmm. anti fracking. Yep. yep. And they came to meet me about, well, let's, what can we do to solve this problem? And then I said, well, let's, we could create a plan for New York. At the time, though, I said, it's way too much work. I won't do it. But, <laughs> but I did say, I, did say um, I will write one paragraph. And so, and so when I finally got down to writing that one paragraph, I got really inspired. And overnight, the next morning, actually, I, I sent this group, which had expanded by then, a like 16-page single-spaced manuscript of a New York Energy Plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, I, yeah. So, so I wrote a New York Energy Plan overnight. Although it did take another year and a half, I think, to finally I went through like 35 drafts and finally got published a year and a half later. But that was the start of yeah, a wind, water, solar plan for New York. And then that led to I thought, okay, let's do one for California. And then I thought, okay, let's do another state, Washington. And then I thought, well, why not do all 50 states? try to automatize it, so I created plans. We, I got students engaged, and we, we created plans for 50 states, and we eventually expanded to look at 143 countries, and we've now done over 110 cities as well, wrote plans for those. And these plans have, fortunately, in the United States, have led to 14 states and territories passing laws or executive orders to go to 100% renewables in the electric power sector. Uh, not other sectors, unfortunately, so far, but in the electric power sector, at least. There are 62 countries now that have passed laws to go to 100% renewables. There are 300 cities worldwide, including about 170 in the U.S. that have passed laws. And there are over 200, I think, 40 or 50 companies now, international companies, including eight of the 10 biggest companies of the world, have have now committed to 100% renewables for their global operation. So there's this whole movement that has grown, and that actually... It grew, well, the Solutions Project, I should say, really had a huge influence on the transmission of this information to the states and cities, Mm -hmm. because we really, we started, so in 2011, as I mentioned, I met with Mark Ruffalo and company, and we ended up starting this nonprofit called the Solutions Project with Josh Fox and Marco Kraples, and there's also help from Cornell professors, Tony Ingrafia and Bob Howarth. Yep. There are others that have have helped. And then we engaged other celebrities, we engaged business people, we engaged community leaders. And this is really how this movement grew, because we took these scientific energy plans and then these nonprofits, especially the NGOs like the Sierra Club, really went for all the cities. They have, they have you know thousands of people on the ground in different states, and they went to all these cities and got 176 cities so far to commit to 100% renewables in the United States. and that's But that was due to this um, really collaboration among the science, the business, the culture, and the community that the Solutions Project set up. And the Sierra Club was uh, part of that, uh, part of that culture. And in fact, there are now 100 nonprofits that have, are, are working on 100% renewables. 
It's, fan- and, it's fantastic. Really, it's just amazing. Just so for our audience, uh, if you're near a computer, it's it's thesolutionsproject.org. And if you click on uh, what we do, uh, you can see their uh, 100% clean energy vision, it's called. Um, and there you can basically, it's an interactive map of the world. You can click on any country and see the blueprint that's been developed for them. It's really an unbelievable feat here. Um, and congratulations to you and your team for putting this together. It's really remarkable. Thanks, man. But it's not, yeah, it's, it's really the team and all these, and just engaging all these people. And, you know, when we get, because nobody listens to me. I mean, I just, I write the plans and get it out there. But then people like Mark Ruffalo, uh, Leo DiCaprio joined us, and, and several other celebrities really get information out to yeah, lots of people. That's right. As do business leaders and uh, cultural leaders. It just kind of grew organically. And it, you know, this was not a lobbying campaign. I mean, we mm-hmm. didn't. Mm-hmm. This orga- we could, you know, mm-hmm. none of us were paid in right. the solutions project at first. To do, I mean, I'm, I've never been paid. I mean, the only people, one, in, for two years, we, there was nobody paid in the solutions project. Then in 2013, a staff was hired to actually run it as a formal nonprofit. Yeah. And then, you know, and I've never been paid for anything, and I never wanted to. I'd like to do everything. You know, I've been doing this because I'm passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but I, my point is, is that all of us went, did this because we were passionate, and this grew organically. If we had, like, planned this as an enterprise, you know, this never would have worked. Yeah. If I tried to even, just could only happen organically, and it was fortunate that it did happen because it really grew. to. So now that this 100% idea is mainstream everywhere, and things are actually getting done. Um, there are also still blockades, so I don't want to you know, get my hopes up too much, but there are, we're so much further along than we were 11 years ago. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is Mark Jacobson, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University and director of its Atmosphere Energy Program. So I, we had a concern. One of the things that we work on a lot is, is uh, geothermal. We are the producers of a series of events, sustainable energy events, where we have uh, producers of equipment come and meet with prospective buyers and so on. And, of course, geothermal is a big part of that. I was disappointed when I first looked at this chart to see that geothermal was only in the United States was only going to represent 0.6%. But now that I understand that you're really talking about just the electricity and not necessarily the total, the, the total energy load, is that right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, to clarify, there are only 13 states in the U.S. that have really good hot geothermal resources for electricity because you need a certain temperature. Yeah for good geothermal electricity, and New York is not one of them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But, um, but, but every state has heat in the ground mm-hmm, that can be used mm-hmm. for geothermal heat pumps. Sure. Exactly. That's, yeah. And that's what, that's what everybody at, at these yeah. expos has been done. Oh, it's, it's a mix of solar, solar, solar geothermal, and geothermal and air source, right. all yeah. kinds yeah, of so things. Ge- yeah, so that's a different type of geothermal. That's for, yeah. like, heating, which is great, heating actually, in New York. Yep. There's a yeah. company in New York called Dandelion, which yep, yep, we know them. That makes, yeah, yeah, makes geothermal heat pumps, or say so basically it's a borehole that goes down in your backyard, and it's really inexpensive. It used to be geothermal; you have to excavate your whole backyard, but yeah. now they have a technology you can just have one little hole, or maybe two holes, very deep, and then you can have. So this will provide you stable 
heating in the winter time, even when it's freezing outside, because down in the ground it's warm, and so exactly. you can extract that heat and heat your home at a very low cost. So, isn't isn't Dandelion actually owned by one of the utilities? Well, I, no, they're, I think they're a private company, but they were they're a startup, a spinoff of Google or, That's or, right. or of Google. Google. Or okay. Something. Yeah. All right, uh, good. Mark, have you looked at, at at the issue of storage at all? I know it's one of the issues that comes up a lot in terms of you know if we can generate power when we don't need it, how can we store it? Um, yeah, I have looked at storage quite a lot. I've looked at electricity storage, heat storage, cold storage, hydrogen storage. Where, where are we? Are we are we making progress in those areas? Do you see breakthroughs on the horizon or or what? Oh, yeah, there's plenty of storage techniques. Well, first of all, like with heat storage and cold storage, I mean, those are low cost. They're abundant everywhere. I mean, you all, you've seen water tanks. So that's basically mm-hmm. storage. Even, mm-hmm. you know, everybody in their own home has a store, has heat storage in their, if they have a water tank. Mm-hmm. They all, there are also community water tanks, and that's called district heating storage. And you can store either hot water, cold water. There are ice cubes, like Stanford University. My university... Uh, in 1998, they had a big ice cube under a building. So when the electricity when the electricity <laughs> price was low at night, um, they'd produce ice, and then during the day, instead of using air conditioning, they'd run water through coils in the ice to and send the cold water to buildings to cool the buildings. So that's a very low cost existing technique that's been wow. used in stadiums and hospitals sure. and yeah. can be used on a larger scale. Hmm. Um, there are water pits. I mean, there are countries in, in Denmark, um, they have like a lot of water pit storage for communities where it's basically a big swimming pool of water where they have solar collectors that will heat the water in the summer and then they, it's insulated and that water, hot water will be used in the winter to provide heating for buildings. So that's existing low cost types of storage. Um, now for electricity, the biggest type of storage we have is hydroelectric dams. I mean, you can turn those on and off within seconds to generate electricity and that's done in many places that have hydro. Concentrated solar power has storage associated with it, and that's really low cost. Uh, pumped hydroelectric, where you have two reservoirs, a lower and an upper one. When you have extra electricity, you pump water up a hill. When you let, need electricity, you let water drain down the hill and run through a turbine to produce electricity. That's relatively low cost and very abundant. And there are similar technologies that have been developed recently that you, so where you don't need reservoirs, you can do the same thing with just concrete blocks. Uh, you basically have a a tower of, of concrete blocks where you, when you have extra electricity, you lift a block with a crane. And when you, when you need the electricity, you lower the block to the ground or to lower down. Yeah. And Very cool. the motor that's used to lift the block is run in reverse as a generator to produce electricity. And that's just like pumped hydroelectric power. Yeah. And it's relatively yeah. low cost. Yeah. So let me ask you another question. So where are we as far as expertise in this country? Because I, I noted that both of these wind farms that are going to be built in the Atlantic off off New York are going to be built by either a Swedish or a Norwegian company. And why not an American company? Do we not have this kind of expertise? Um, it's growing. Well, General Electric... I mean, they build wind turbines. They're probably in the U.S. They're probably the biggest uh, builder of wind turbines. But I think you know, it's one of these things where, like the, in uh, Denmark, is I think that most of the manufacturing of wind was there for a couple decades, mm-hmm. and they have experience with offshore wind. They have a huge amount of offshore wind off in the North Sea, not only from Denmark but Germany and Norway and UK. The UK has the largest installation. So. There's a huge amount of offshore wind that's already been developed in the North Sea, but virtually none in the U.S. So, so you might as well go with people who have experience, and right. that experience will be translated to the U.S. once we start going. I can guarantee you there will be uh, big U.S. manufacturers once this thing starts going. 
And there are companies, I think, that have been bidding from the U.S. Uh, for offshore wind. It's just that they don't have any experience because there's no offshore wind to hardly in the U.S. right now. Well, we're, we're getting toward the end of our, of our hour, Mark. The question I often ask our guests, are you optimistic about the future? Yeah, I'm very optimistic. I mean, I know we'll have a lot of pain before we get there, but I know for first though, the solution is possible. We have the technology, the costs are sufficiently low that we will save a huge amount of money. I mean, if we transition the world, our energy costs will be 60% lower mm. because we, we use about 57% less energy with this new paradigm because it's so much more efficient. Mm-hmm. Not because we're like adding 57% energy efficiency improvements. It's because like electric cars use a lot less energy than gasoline cars because electric heat pumps use a lot less energy than gas combustion heaters. So things like that. And uh, electric electric uh, heating and transportation is just so much more efficient that we end up using, if we look across all sectors of energy, about 57% less energy. The cost per unit energy is also 10% lower. So if we get 60% lower costs per year with this new system if we transition. So because it's so cheap and because we eliminate all the air pollution and global warming agents, people have a, have a motivation to do that. And because it produces more jobs, we find 3 million more jobs produced than lost. These are long-term full-time jobs in the U.S. alone, and 28 million more produced worldwide than lost. There's a job creation benefit. There's a cost benefit. We don't use much land, turns out. We actually use less land than the fossil fuel industry has used. If we transition, it might not look like it from what people claim. But if you actually do the calculations, you're using less land. The fossil fuel industry in the U.S. uses 1.3% of the entire U.S. land area. Mm. And if we do this for wind, water, solar for the U.S., we'd use less than 1% of the land area. So it's uh, definitely a benefit in terms of the land. And it's, it's more reliable, too, because fossil fuels will run out over time. And whereas clean renewable energy is sustainable forever, we do need to grow it if population grows, but that's, that's a modest growth relative to the continuous. I mean, every year in the U.S., there are 50,000 new oil and gas wells drilled. Mm-hmm. You'd have to do this forever. 50,000, there, there are 1.3 million active wells and about 2.7 million inactive ones. And so you have to do this forever, just pockmark the U.S. with all these oil and gas wells. And we'll, we'll pretty much be like a sieve. The whole country will be like a sieve where nobody can walk without stepping in a well. <laughs> so well, even there's, it, there's also the, the protection of human health. And, I mean, we have, sure. you know, just it's a, it's a terrible risk to be um, constantly exposed, especially in places like in areas, communities that are underserved, communities where they're using all these Fence line communities. Um, yeah, fence sure. line yeah. communities. Well, yeah, certainly people who are suffering the most are poor communities, and you know, a lot of them are sited near either wells or freeways or power plants where you get you know, the first exposure to this pollution. And so the best benefit of a transition are these communities as well. So that's, you know, if we transition, they will benefit the most, these poor communities that have, are located near near. Uh, combustion in infrastructure. Right. And that's that's actually one of the things that could really help push this forward is the, the environmental justice issue mm-hmm. that is, uh, is, is big right now on everybody's minds. Sure. Yeah, there's lots of motivation on, for a lot of people to transition. In fact, there's very little downside of transitioning. I mean, 
I think the only people who would be against it are people who have a financial interest in the current infrastructure. Which is a lot of people and, right. and, and a powerful lobby. So well, I don't think it's a lot of people. I think it's a few people that are very powerful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. The, the, but they, but they, you know, they influence other people who wouldn't benefit, but they, you know, it's just there's a lot of misinformation coming from those people who have financial interest. And so they miss, you know, it's hard to get info. You know, I'm talking to you guys and giving you information that I know, but how many people listen to me? Not that many. <laughs> well, I know, but it's the same thing for all the other, I mean, it's the same thing for the pharmaceutical industry and some of the other yeah. big industries. It's like, yeah. But You've that's got why a few powerful industries that are influencing the, the lawmakers or the decision makers, and that's kind of where we are. But, oh. you know, but people have a, have a huge um, opportunity here. Yeah, and right. that's why we have this show is to build public opinion. Well, Mark Jacobson, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Green Street. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for all the, the work that you've done. Thank you for putting, helping to put together the team that's continuing your work at the Solutions Project. And I hope you'll come back and join us on another edition of Green Street at some point in the future. Right, where, yeah, we, can, where, we, can, right, where we can talk about all the progress that yeah. has been made. You can add right. a few more countries yeah. and a few more states. That'd be great. Yeah, that would be terrific. You've been listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest has been Mark Jacobson, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Stanford University and Director of its Atmosphere Energy Program. Before we go, I just want to say a word about WBAI and the fact that we are here on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock because of your support. WBAI is community-supported radio, and that means we depend completely on contributions from our listeners to stay on the air. If you enjoyed this conversation with Mark Jacobson and you'd like to hear more Green Street programs, please consider making a financial gift to WBAI. It's easy to do. You go to the website, wbai.org. There you'll find lots of ways to contribute. The easiest and best way uh, to make your contribution is to become a WBAI buddy. And that way, a little bit of money gets deducted from your credit card every month. You probably won't even notice it. Uh, but over time, it does add up. And these kind of contributions really help the station with its financial planning so it has some sort of security moving forward. If you go to the website, wbai.org, scroll down until you see the little blue box, the two figures there together. It says, become a WBAI buddy. You click on that and fill in just a couple of fields, and before you know it, you're done. If you want to make that contribution in the name of Green Street, that would be terrific. Uh, we always appreciate uh, people who make those donations in our name, and of course we appreciate hearing from all of you. You can reach us through our website, which is greenstreetradio.com. Let us know what you think of the program. Let us know when we're doing things right, when we're doing things not right. We're always happy to hear from you. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition. And until then, be safe, be well.